What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Corey Henson, EVP and head of Unscripted for TNT, TBS, and True TV. I tried something a little different this episode. I thought I'd start this conversation with a thought exercise. So if you are in your car right now, the subway, the gym, uh, you know, hiding from your family in the garage... Play along. And if you think there's any shows or anything me and Corey missed in this kind of mini game that me and her play, this thought exercise, if you think there's any shows that we missed, hit me up. I'm not hard to find. This was a great sit down with Corey. She's been at Fox. We worked together briefly at Electus. She spent years at ABC. And now she's overseeing Unscripted for the Turner Networks, making shows like Wipeout, The Go Big Show, the Harry Potter Tournament of Houses. It's always just fun to sit with a high-level executive that at the end of the day is just still a reality TV nerd like the rest of us. And I mean that in the most flattering way possible. This is my sit-down with Corey Henson. I hope you enjoy it. All right, I have a fun... I have a fun exercise for us to start this. Okay, go for it. It occurred to me the other day, all right? And I want to get your thoughts. If you had to ask yourself, what is the greatest American-created reality format of all time? Yeah. Not game show. I'm, I'm not counting game shows. Okay. okay? So not no Jeopardy, no Wheel of Fortune, right? American-created, because you look at all the goats. Yeah. As you know. Dancing with the Stars, Survivor, Survivor, Big Brother, right? I mean, all all created overseas. Okay, Idol, Got Talent, Master Chef, Master Chef. So I have a list here. Okay, okay, I have. I'm writing mine down. By the way, okay. Let me just tell you what I have, like just for consideration. Okay, I've got I've got six for consideration. Okay, The Real World. Yes. Project Runway. Okay. Chopped. House Hunters, The Bachelor, and America's Funniest Home Videos, which I don't think most people would think of. If you look at the longevity of that show, I think it has to be in the conversation. Those are just six that come to mind. I think that that is, that show's wildly underrated. It still does a good number in Fringe, by the way. So it's not even like it's primetime and it still does a good number. I, it's been a long time since I've seen, uh, seen the network overnights, but I would imagine that it probably does better than a lot of primetime does now. Yeah. So I think that videos is wildly underrated. Um, and somehow is more relevant yeah, than right. ever, ever before because we're all filming ourselves more than ever before. Okay. I have two that are not on your list. Okay. Amazing race. Oh yeah. Cause I was going through, like I go through, you know, it's like big brother survivor race. Then Obviously, Idol, Hell's Kitchen, Master Chef, The Voice. So, well, well, well. I, I'll get, I'll get to it later. But I think Shark Tank might be the greatest format ever. Ever, right? And is and is also Japanese created. What yeah. what was the second okay, one? Okay, so my second one. This one you're going to be like, what intervention? Oh Jesus! I wasn't even thinking like an intervention or like a ninety day fiance. I wasn't even thinking it, like it's yeah. a, a like it's a process show. There are, talk about stakes, everyone, like, you know, it's everyone's favorite word. There's a big reveal at the end. 
um, like you're drawn in from the, you know, from the get go and it's made for about, you know, a piece of gum and a shoelace. I mean, I know, I don't think they're making originals anymore. I think they just take the ones from Canada or something and show them. Interesting. I mean, I, I guess if you can put, if I can put real world on that list, which is really docu. So yeah. really, if you can put that on the list, I guess you can put intervention on that list too. It makes sense. There's, it makes you think, can Pawn Stars be on that list? Totally. And also- As a format? Oh, for sure. Right? Pawn Stars is, is the same format as Shark Tank. It's a hybrid though. It's it's an Oculus-soap yeah. hybrid format, well, right? So is like, think about, yes, yes, yes. In that they're all in this, it's a workplace hybrid. But I was going to say, so is like, Shark Tank in the same way that the voice is where it's like that show is just as much about the people that walk in with their products and their businesses and the American dream yeah. and and just as much about the interaction between those five sharks and the the drama that plays out between the five of them just like the voices with the sitcom between the four judges you know on on that end even though yes they pitch it like it's a singing show and it's about the talent that's up on stage but it's really about the dynamic of the four people in those seats and but yeah, so those are those were the two. Although when we, we were just talking, and then another one just popped into my head, another goodie. Oh, I mean, there's some. There's 90 Day Fiance, and like, I mean, right? Yeah, some of those dating formats. But The Bachelor, that's but The Bachelor's the gold standard. The gold standard. It's also, I think, like the ones where they've remained unbeatable. Like, meaning everyone's tried to do a dating show after Bachelor, and it's like it's no nothing's ever stood up to it let's if we go through the list here and just the pros and cons house hunters if you if yeah. you could be the company behind all these spinoffs i mean you don't need to worry about the casting right because let's be honest most of the couples and house hunters you would never want to go on a double date with in your life <laughs> so it's, so it's not it's not about the casting right it's literally just finding properties and we all yeah. know behind the scenes that they've already bought one so you can make a million of these, which they have. You're not going to get any negative press producing this show. You don't have to worry about negotiating new cast deals every right. season and getting and, and having renegotiations. Right. Not a lot of legal concerns. Like just in terms of like ease of production. Simplicity, simplicity yeah. And simplicity, but oh. like being a hit and like a network defining show. House Hunters is on the list right along, right along with Chopped too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like Chopped is like Food Network's version of House Hunters, basically. Yeah, totally. It's like, it's like the equivalent. It is what, you know, the simplicity of House Hunters speaks to like the warm glass of milk that is HGTV. <laughs> like it's everything, you know, no, no challenges, no obstacles, no hurdles in the show or probably behind the scenes. Like it's just easy breezy, super lean back, like. Totally agree. I've, I have found with just the women in my life, there's, there's two camps. And there's the camp that likes to go to bed watching HGTV. And then there's the camp that for some reason likes to go to bed watching Investigation Discovery. And my 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 wife is uh, definitely on the HGTV end of the spectrum where she needs that on at night to go to sleep, like just uh -huh. to calm her, calm her anxieties from the yeah. rest of the day. I'm with you. I'm like during my relaxing times, like a massage or a hike, like when I'm with my own thoughts, I will put on a true crime podcast. And the only reason I haven't been listening to them that much lately is I feel, I think I might've listened to all of them. Like I'm out. <laughs> I don't think Corey, I, I think true crime podcast is like our country's greatest export. Now I, I, 
I feel like everybody's cousin has one in a garage somewhere now. I know, but they're not, well, not all of them are good, but also, you know, and have you, have you watched only murders in the building? Yes. How, yes. how, how amazing. I was so pleasantly surprised by it because um, I'm not what you'd call a shorty. Like I'm not a huge <laughs> Martin Short fan. Um, he He's a little much for me sometimes. It's even Steve Martin is a national treasure. But again, I don't know if I'd go into a show with him and Martin Short. And then Selena Gomez, I'm like, ah, whatever. I mean, and so we, we went into it planning to hate watch the first episode. And by the end, we were like, that, that was actually really good I, yeah. I really enjoyed that they somehow weirdly like balanced each other out in their energies yeah um and that was like a good twisty turny story too like I was you know engaged and interested like I wanted to know where it was gonna go next and they were they ended up being super cute together are you not a father of the bride fan yes I mean it's just um I, not so much the the what's the character's name Frank. Frank. I mean offended by it. I just think there are some characters that are better as a, as a five minute SNL sketch Yeah, yeah. versus, you know, Fair. but this show made me fall in love with him again. And especially them together is just like, was so comforting. It made me so happy at Bowfinger's one of my favorite movies ever. And then somehow Selena Gomez and her weird like, flat affect just completely yep. like balanced out their manic energy and it worked perfectly for me. She's very Daria, right? <laughs> Yes, very much. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, yeah. I, I I lured you in here just to talk about 90s movies. Uh, now that we've talked about Father of the Bride, I'd like to talk to you about Can't Hardly Wait. No. Um, <laughs> I so Let's talk about uh, They Love. We talk about, can we talk about Clueless? Uh, we can go uh, all yes. down. All right. So I know you were originally from the Chicago area, right? But then you went to college in Arizona. That's about all I know as friends. That's, I think that's the, ex- I mean, I, I don't think you have siblings, right? I don't have siblings. I'm an only. Right. And uh, you grew up and you grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Yeah. Child of uh, divorced parents. My dad moved out here. Actually, my, both my parents moved out here, like right after I was born, my dad was a lawyer and he came out here to do some lectures and he said it was February and he got off the plane in LA and he was like, why would anyone ever live anywhere else? Like he'd just come from, you know, downtown Chicago where it was minus 10 degrees. So they moved out here, divorced like a year later. And then I spent the next 18 years sort of going back and forth, but was in Chicago for the most part until high school, then came out here for a year or two out here in LA for a year or two of high school, back to Chicago. I sort of ping ponged until college in Arizona. And my dad's only rule, I was living in Chicago at the time when I applied to schools, my dad's only rule was I needed to go somewhere closer to him, Mm. meaning like nowhere on the East coast or Florida or, you know, nothing, nothing East of Chicago. Um, and I was an only child. I had these three girl cousins I'd grown up with in Chicago and they all had gone to U of A at some point. And, uh, so I was like, ah, I mean, I'll go there. That place is really fun. I had a great time. Uh, but knew like early on knew during knew in during college that I wanted to go into television and had grown up doing like theater and performance and yeah I was gonna ask what kind of kid were you in high school because I could see I could see it going two ways with you you are conscientious but you also have a little rebellious streak in you too (laughs) so I I could either see you being the kid in student council and participating in school events I could also see you smoking cigarettes in the parking lot 
I was the cheerleader who smoked cigarettes in the bathroom. <laughs> That's exactly right. I was like the uh, AP student whose you know, parents of the kids I was in class with didn't want them to hang out with me. So I was always like a bit, wow. uh, a bit of a tweener, which was great. I got to like, you know, friends with, with, with everyone. And I was heavily involved in theater, which was like a whole different, you know, group of kids. Although in my house, in my school in Chicago, theater was actually very uh, cool. All the football mm -hmm. players were in shows. It was like mm -hmm. integrated. We had a great, like amazing program. Um, but yes, I was very much, um, very, very much a, a little bit of both. I was like, I'd be in AP classes and I'd like cheat my way through and get a B, you know, like <laughs> I, I like, I'm sure I could have gone to a higher university, but at the time I was like, U of A seems fun. It's really warm there. Did they, so the, the program at U of A, like, did you get the opportunity to do more in broadcasting or journalism no. while there? Or did that all come out post-college? I did it during college, but on my own, I did internships. Um, so I worked in, I started in local news and I actually got into TV because I wanted to work in sports. It was, U of A was a massive sports school and yep. I was there during like the final fours and our football team was on the cover of sports illustrated. And, um, and I like, it was right around the rise of like ESPN and sort of that like comedic rye, like punchy, uh, you know, voice and sports casting. Yeah. Like that, like the, the Dan Patrick, Keith Olbermann era of sports center where yeah. it could be a little more tongue in cheek and not as earnest in, in yeah. terms of the coverage. Right. A lot of play on words, a lot of, yeah. Like not taking itself too seriously and just, yeah. Clever writing. It was, it was sort of like, you know, 25% comedy, 75% sport. Yeah. And, and I really loved that. So like my dream job was to go live in Bristol and work at ESPN. And so I started in news in college. I'd say like my, probably my junior year of college, I was doing the overnight shift. So I would like rip scripts and roll prompter. And um, it's so funny because I'm sure I thought I was like a total uh, like fuck off. And I ended up like reconnecting with the girl that ran the internship program years later. She's like, you're the best like intern we ever had. I'm like, what? She goes, oh yeah. And I'm like, Rebecca, I think I probably only showed up for like half of the shifts. And she goes, that was twice as many as every other college kid showed up for. Like, she's like, you had to come into work at two in the morning, you know, like, so. By the way, the pressure, I've done the small market news station internship. You talked about rolling prompter. The pressure oh, yeah. of rolling prompter on a live local broadcast at that age, when you don't know what you're doing yeah. and you've got you like the reporter, the, the anchor, their yeah. livelihood is in your, literally in your hands as your rolling uh -huh. prompter. Yeah. I remember doing that and then never wanting to do it again. I remember <laughs> the pressure I felt was crazy. The fact that they put it in the intern's hands now that I'm thinking of it. See, I think back to, so my, after I left uh, or after I graduated, I, I had planned on moving back out to California, but I ended up getting a job at the ABC affiliate in Phoenix, which is, you know, like an hour and a half from where University of Arizona was. And it was an easy move. And I felt like the opportunity was, and uh, it's top 20 market. It's really competitive, actually, Phoenix, as far as like local news goes. So I went and, and did that for a couple of years. I started as an assistant, like in the promo department. And then I moved over to news promos. And then I moved over to the NBC affiliate, Scandalous. I left one station, went to the other as a writer, and then started producing the morning show. So every day I would come in at like 10 o'clock at night. I would look, I'd 
watch down the 10 o'clock news while it was happening. I would pull the stories that I was, you know, I'd start building my rundown. I'd write every story in the rundown. Um, sometimes you're still writing it when you take it down to the booth. The anchors would come in around four in the morning. I would um, look at all the packages and stuff that had been cut overnight or the stuff that I was pulling from other, you know, markets and feeds and stuff. I'd rip the scripts. I'd go down to the booth. I'd sit with the director. We'd go through the show, graphics, mark everything up. And then sometimes I'd be rewriting the stories like in the F block as the C block was happening. And then oh my you're gosh. writing scripts out to the anchors. You're filling them in on like the cooking segment that's coming in in the C block. And like, it was just, it was the best experience. And I would have the worst shows sometimes like embarrassingly bad. And then, and I had this crotchety old director and he would yell at me, he'd smoke a pipe. Like an actual the, pipe? An actual pipe in the booth. In this, yeah, in the studio. In, yeah. in the studio. And he would yell at me like if seriously, like if a period was in the wrong place and he, it scared the shit out of me enough that like now, even when I, I'm so like conscious, I'm that person that like, when I mess up, a, when I misspell a word in text, I'm like, ah, and I'll like resend it with it spelled, you know, properly. Um, and, but it was like every day for two years, I did that. And it's like, you'd have that horrible show on Tuesday and you come in Wednesday and have the best show of your life. And then it, it was like, you got a fresh start every day and it forced me, I learned how to write. Yep. Um, so and I learned how to tell, how to, how to build a story and, you know, tell, tell a story all the way through. So when I got to LA and I had live experience. Well, so did you, know, did you know somebody in LA? No, I didn't really know anyone in entertainment. I had one girlfriend from college that was like a promo assistant at wheel of a PR assistant at wheel of fortune. That was my closest connection. Okay. Uh, my dad had like dated a like some a Hollywood sitcom writer, like back in the day, but like, I, I mean. Yeah, you were, gonna, you were exactly gonna phone that connection in. Yeah. Correct. Hey, remember? Yeah, <laughs> um, that job was exhausting doing that overnight shift. They'd say that you like get used to it, but you never do. I remember like having to, like I was picking, you know, stories for the, the rundown and there was like some, this train crash in India that killed like 80 people or something. And I was like, ah, do I give it 15 seconds? I'm not sure if it's worth it. And I was like, what is wrong with me? And I, you know, I, I, at that point I was like, I think I've got everything I need to get out of this experience. I really still want to do right. sports, but I, I wanted to do more like features, like Olympic style, you know, storytelling. I would come home from my overnight shift every day. I'd get home at like nine or 10 in the morning and I sleep during the day, but I would lay, I lay on the couch trying to fall asleep. And it was always E was on and it was the entertainment news back like way pre Seacrest and at like five Juliana Rands at all put a million hosts ago. And they were doing that same like flippy like patter that they were doing at Sports Center. Like it was that same yeah, I never really it's funny. I never really thought of that. Like if that was part of an inspiration of how you could tackle but I mean I guess entertainment tonight would have really been the first entertainment magazine show that would could be like light and breezy and right. playful, right? Those yeah. were, and those were like a little sycophantic, like they were. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Fawning yeah. over the stars. E was like a little more, E was very tongue in cheek. Yeah. It had an attitude, like even their promo, it was like the new kid on the block. They did true Hollywood stories and uh, mysteries and scandals. Like it was, they were sort of thumbing their nose a little bit at celebrity. It's funny. Like you never realize like how much the personality of E 
match the personality of Joan Rivers. Oh my God. Yeah. Just, just in terms of how they tackle the entertainment industry. Yeah. Right? yeah the voices. I ended up coming out to LA with no job and working within like a week, the Monica Lewinsky, the impeachment scandal had broken. I'd interviewed at like KABC. I knew someone that knew someone. I lied to get an interview at KCAL. I pretended like, I think I, I think I looked someone up and then said that I knew them or something. I can't even remember the extent of it, but you, whatever. You had a fake like reference? Yeah. I don't know if it was a reference, but I used them as a way in, like I called yeah. someone and maybe I'd like met the person once, but I certainly shouldn't have been using them as my entree. Yeah. Um, and then my girlfriend at Wheel of Fortune somehow got me in to meet at E! News. So I started in their news department and and I was working at KCAL and KBC too. So I went from like in one week, I had no jobs to like three jobs as a freelancer. So some days I'd have like, I'd do a shift at E, then I'd drive across town to KBC and then, and I loved working at E and the, it was like, they would make me do, they'd have me do one package a day for the newscast. And I was like, that's it. <laughs> I'm like, I, I'm used to doing a whole show by myself. Right. And, and they'd pay you and they'd pay you like a day rate. They'd pay me a day rate. Exactly. Yeah. So some days I'd just come in and they'd send me out to like a red carpet. So already right there, that's like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And then some days I'd come in and I'd just write and cut a package some days, you know, whatever. It was a little bit different every day. And at E, especially then it was like, this was like, they didn't have a development department. They didn't have original programming really. Like they had like doc stuff, like mysteries and scandals, true Hollywood stories, maybe a couple like um, wild on, you know, pop all of so shows. So the first soup didn't exist? Well, yes, it did. Talk soup existed. Um, the Gre- Greg Kinnear talk soup, did that exist? Greg Kinnear talk soup existed. Greg okay. was gone already. So this was later years. This was the John Henson years. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Okay. Yes, which is where I bu- lit- literally bumped into him. And that's how I met him. And okay. that's how Henson became Henson. But you didn't have to try hard to stand out at E because all I had to do was like not wear flip-flops and ripped jeans and like, actually be willing to work more than eight hours a day. And I was considered a wild overachiever there. And I was like, so I was like, I've used to work in like 16 hours, 18 hour shifts. This is like, I love it. I remember I would turn around in the newsroom after I'd finished my package, it'd be like 4 PM and it would just be like tumbleweeds going, you know, through the newsroom. So they were so good to me there. I started as a segment producer. I left like four years later as an EP, granted an EP at E, but after about a year in news, I was one of the only ones that had live, actual live experience. So they asked me if I wanted to go help out in their live events department, which was all of the Joan Rivers and Melissa Rivers red carpet. Did you go freelance before you got to ABC or did you go straight from E to ABC? What was the... No, was the no. Goal? I left E when ABC was launching the first iteration of I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, which was live, live in Australia. I knew John Sade, who was an executive at ABC at the time. He was leaving, he was stepping back from being an executive to go run that show. And I knew him uh, from over the years. Primarily, I knew him and Andrea Wong from when I'd be out on the red carpet. They would see me like running around this little like, you know, 26 year old Moffat or something being like, um, I want you to lay that cable there. And then if you put that over there and then drop that over here and I want the overhead shot over. And they were like, who are you? What are you doing? And also they knew my then husband, John, very well too. He eventually left Talk Soup and went to ABC 
I basically got the job at ABC when he got the job at ABC. Wow. And so, um, it was, it was great to be there. I started like a month before we launched Wipeout. So I got to be there for the massive, you know, success of the, the ABC launch. Corey, the full circleness of all this, Oh, because now you're doing Wipeout at TBS with another John, and John know. Cena, a very different John. Very different John. But he, by the way, can we just, can we talk about this? This is a perfect snapshot of the state of our industry. <laughs> yeah. Original Wipeout on ABC when it's a big, big show. And John Henson is the host of it. Yeah. Now to get Wipeout made and get it on TV, you need a full-blown box office movie star, John, John Cena, to be the host yeah. of, of the very same show. That is, that is how it has evolved over that's the years. How, in terms that's of where we are. But don't you feel like now it's kind of the death of the TV host, right? Because it's really celebrities now are now the host, right? The people that yeah. cut their teeth coming up as just hosts, just that's who they are. And also that Henson grinded it out in, in the comedy clubs yeah. for years and years and years, and then, talk, you know, talk soup and he earned it. And I've seen has earned it in a much different way there. Those two are, are in, incomparable. Yeah. But, um, it's funny too, when we launched, it's like for as many fans as Cena has, and I love him and he has been one of the best partners. I did a couple of shows with him before we even got to wipe out and he's just one of the hardest working, like, Oh yeah. Thoughtful people I've ever collaborated with, but, but there were a lot of people, fans of the show that were just like really, really missed Henson and Anderson, both of them. But those, yeah, of course you're going to get those fans. There's going to be those fans that are like, bring back, it has to be them. You know, you're, you're going to get those with anything right. you do. Right. That's, that's reboots. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. The place we are in with talent, because I remember when Jeff Foxworthy got 150 grand an episode for Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And it's so weird that this is all like public knowledge now. And yeah. so maybe I'm off. I'm sorry, Jeff Foxworthy, if you're listening. <laughs> and we were all like, you know, unscripted. We were like, fuck me. He's just ruined the curve. How every host I had in every budget for ABC was 35 grand. And if we wanted to go above that, we had to like lobby business affairs to get them up to like 50 or 60. That was crazy to get people to that level. And then, I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm doing the math. I'm like, I'm doing the math of like, who else could have asked for more at the time when the original True. fifth grader is out? No, but I'm thinking like, what were yeah. the peers at that point? Because that's pre, no, is that post-idol? But Ryan Seacrest was not a name at that point, you no. know? No, Ryan was, Ryan probably got like, you know. That's, that's, a, that's a good, ex no, that's a really good call in terms of like what might've been the inflection point of celebrities hosting these types of shows because- Tom Bergeron, again, was a standard game show host when he was doing Dancing with the Stars. So I'm trying mm -hmm. to think of what other peers there would have been of that era. Yeah, think of it. Well, it was like Jeff was not famous when he started Survivor. Um, right. Phil, Phil wasn't famous when he started Amazing Race. I mean, Ju Julie is a different story because of yep. where she the, came the from. Chris, Chris in the back. Chris Harrison. Chris Harrison. These were all people that just came up through the hosting yeah. cable game show kind of world. And was, I'm telling you, it was, it was, um, it was Foxworthy, then Steve Harvey, Steve Harvey really fucked it up for a lot of people. But Steve Harvey came much, much later though. Right. I mean, when he started doing family yeah. feud, that was, I mean, and, and but yeah, that was, that was some time later. I mean, that Louis Anderson had done it before him. Right. 
Alec Baldwin. That was a big one. And then The Rock and Kevin yeah. Hart. That's where it like, that's where it left the face of the planet when you're like, yes. okay, well, if he's getting 400 grand an episode, you know, or whatever, and you're shooting two episodes a day or three episodes a day because he needs to make a million dollars a day to make it worth his while. Yep. I sort of like, it bums me out. Although COVID has actually been good for this because you can force people to get on a Zoom. And I'm like, if you can't be bothered to get on a 20 minute Zoom in your living room for 500 grand a day, then I don't, then you don't want to do the show, right? Yeah. You just don't want to do this. You don't care. Yeah. Yeah. No, what was interesting about the rock when we when we did that with the hero was he was already a big top box office star when he yeah. agreed to do that and was really one of the because even like jeff foxworthy was not that he was a really really successful touring comedian who made right. a lot of money touring right and he had a and he had a sitcom, sitcom yeah the rock was a full-on movie star and and hosted the hero and credit to his team for kind of being ahead of the curve of realizing this is not going to damage his brand. Right. Like you're not going to hurt his movie career if he hosts an unscripted show. In fact, he's going to win over a whole other audience that yep. isn't going to his movies. Yeah. But that was the fear years ago was that you can't, was, a movie star can't be taken seriously otherwise. Yeah. It was, it was beneath them. Basically it would degrade their, their brand. Yeah. But you're doing, you're doing that also with, with Tiffany Haddish. Cause I wanted to ask, I, I know we're skipping around a lot, but yeah. I, I'm just, if you look at the roster yeah. of, of the stuff you guys have at Turner right now, it is as impressive as any in terms of the people that are hosting or on the panel of your shows. You have Rosario Dawson on the go big show. You have amazing effing Helen Murin <laughs> doing Harry Potter and tournament of the tournament of houses. And then you have John Cena on wipeout and you've got, your Friday night vibes with Tiffany Haddish. Yeah. Like that is like, that yeah. is a star studded roster of folks playing in the unscripted sandbox, Corey. It's really impressive. Yeah. Thank you. And the Helen Mirren one was like the, we've left the face of the planet. Like that's just a, who and made, I, who I made that I, call? Who made that call? This is not, we've texted about this. This is my seven-year-old daughter's favorite show ever. Cause she's a yeah. huge Harry Potter kid. How that who makes the call and who thinks of Helen Mirren? Is that a JK Rowling ask? No, although we worked really closely with um the Blair partnership, which is sort of her her um board, I guess if, you know, the company that that protects that circles the brand and everything. Um uh no, we it was we worked closely with Blair and then Warner Horizon, so Darnell and Brooke and um and uh everyone over there. Um we had a short list of people and we just kept, we kept Helen Mirren on the list because it just, it made us laugh. Like every time we're like, yeah, <laughs> Helen Mirren, that's hilarious. She'll never do this. And we knew we wanted someone English and they felt that the world of Harry Potter needed an English voice to, you know, there was just something more authentic about, yep. you know, the host being British. And so we actually went to one or two other people first because only because we thought there was no way right oscar winner dame helen Mirren would do a game show and so it was like two two people weirdly i'm forgetting i'm spacing on the second person i very clearly remember the first person but it was like where we took 
you know, two or three weeks courting them and sending materials and waiting for, oh, the manager has to connect with the dude, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, and getting very, very respectful passes because no one wants to say no to that lightly. Right. And so it, we got to the point in the list, like three or four people down where we were back to Helen again. And we were like, just do it. Like get a quick no was basically how we were like, just get the quick no so we can say we did it and then we'll move on to the next one. Yeah, it is. exactly. And so like a week or so goes by and, you know, production still seemed far enough out that we were like, whatever. And then I remember getting a text from Brooke Carson and she was like, talking to Helen's team and they think she's going to like this. They're, they're really interested. Can we start, you know, making an offer? I was like, uh, yes, please. Like I just didn't even know what to do with myself. Did she have a personal affinity for the books or did she just respect the success that they were? I think, well, A, I think she thought it was funny and I don't want to speak on her behalf, but I think she thought it was funny because she is the only Brit of that stature that has not been in a Harry Potter movie. So that was like her entry point. Was right. Like yeah. Because of- even Emma Thompson's in it, Alan Rickman, you have all these greats that are in it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, right. All the, all the greats. And so that was sort of her joke on the way in. Oh um, my God. And, and I she's think, really good. She's, you know why she was a great listener and she really cared about the contestants as people. So I find a lot of times many hosts, whether they're celebrities or not, they're just thinking about what they're going to say next and what's, what the moves are coming up next. Um, and so they're not listening to the answer to the question they just asked. And she was very like focused and engaged. And we, they were long days we put her through. She was on her feet for long periods of time, reading like host copy and everything she said, everything that came out of her mouth sounded just so beautiful rich yeah like and and just like important and she's got a wicked sense of humor um and she was delightful did you shoot an episode a day we shot two a day we shot two a day because i was watching this and i'm like just just from a production design and like art design and props and everything i was like how did they get this in a day like when you guys have the the mail flying out of you know the fireplace like in the movies And all the other movements you guys did and props coming on stage. I was like, this was, this was a beautiful production. And that that's, and I texted you, it might be the best looking shiny floor set I've seen in forever. So Robin Ashbrook and Yasmin Shackleton were amazing from the old school. Uh, They were the hands-on showrunners and they were there obviously through all of the development and games testing and all that. And then creative John Janos. Have you worked with John before? He's, um, I mean, He's obviously wildly talented, but particularly at like immersive sets. Yeah. And he just really, I mean, again, like that was one of the ones where I walked onto the set, you know, you'd seen renderings, but I walked onto the set and one of those rare cases where you're just like, it looks even better than I imagined. Yeah. No, Um, complete. I remember you told me you're like, you were worried people would think it was a real place and not an actual set. And not give him enough credit for it being a set. Yeah. I thought people would be like, oh, what castle did you shoot in? Yeah, uh, it was off Highland over, you know, (laughs) so it was really a great, great experience and it performed really well. And then the reunion on HBO Max just killed it. Yeah, I'm I'm holding out on that because we my daughter hasn't finished the seventh book yet. So I have to hold out. I am dying to watch the Harry Potter reunion. I just I can't do it yet. I'm I'm in I'm in that co-viewing relationship, but with my daughter, you know, like, Uh you know, you normally have with your spouse where you you agree you can't watch one without the other. 
Yeah, I was just gonna say. I have that. I have that going right now with my seven year old. I can't watch that reunion until we finished all the books. Go Big Show. Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, yeah. Go Big Show comes in your door, and this is—is is this Ben and H coming and pitching this? It was. It actually was something had in development at Fox. Oh, okay. I didn't know the backstory on this. It was BP, who was yep. their development executive at Propagate, and Todd Lubin yep. at Matador. Okay, so they had partnered on it on the pitch. They'd, take- they'd brought it in together, yeah. Okay. And then we went through, we put it in development and so had fleshed it out. We brought in this woman, um, or there was a, this woman, Jess Devlin, who was a uh, on an overall at Fox and she was just had done like AGT and like a bunch of um, formatted mm-hmm. talent shows. So she took a crack at it, got it into really great shape. And then we launched Mass Singer. And so it was the feeling was sort of like, well, do we really need two big shiny floor talent shows? You know, we need to see how this one evolves and yeah. where it goes. And so we released it, let it go. So this has got to be a year or so before I left and went to Turner. And then when I got to Turner, I was sitting with Brett Weitz and Kevin Riley and just talking through like some of the big ideas. And that's where the wipeout conversation started. And I showed the sizzle for go big to Kevin. And he was like, yep, got it. Let's do it. I mean, it was like, you know. Was the, was the thought always to shoot it outside or was that a COVID thing? Was it always meant to be outside like in an outdoor arena? No, strictly a COVID thing. It was like, we had originally imagined that it could be like an outdoor sort of festivals type setting, you know, with a standing audience and um, but having nothing to do with COVID. This was probably back in 2018 or so. Yeah. And then assumed it would be a more traditional like AGT style theater setting uh, and the outdoor audience really just became a reality when COVID hit. And it was actually Christina Edwards um, who either read something or saw something. Like we'd been looking into like inserting di- audience digitally or yeah, like yeah, yeah. we build like a hardscape and like try and mm-hmm. we were, you know, looking into all, all of those options. We shot the first season in August, 2020 in Georgia. Yes. So you can imagine like, I mean, it the was con- the concern, the concern at the time. Oh yeah. And the first season we did a full bubble, like no one in, no one out. And it was like, and that was everyone, contestants, judges, crew, right. everyone. And uh, so Christina was like, either she either read something or saw something about how they were handling soccer games in Europe and that people were pulling up outside and they were, players were playing inside and they were projecting the games outside on big screens for everyone mm-hmm. to like drive-in movies, theater style. And that's where the idea came it's from. Like one, it's like one of the greatest happy accidents ever because the look of the show and the outdoor feeling of the show completely, completely yeah. erases any derivative notion you may have of another competition or a talent show. Yeah. It's, it was weird because when the second season came around, we were like, well, we could have some audience inside. And, did we, and we ultimately ended up just... Um, basically doubling down on the outdoor audience, which we call the Gators, but like doubling down on the, on them and adding like space for another couple hundred people and lighting it differently and dressing it differently, like just really, you know, elevating the space outside. So it became, it went from being like a pivot to like a- A trademark. Point. Yeah, like it would became yeah. like, exactly, so. All right, so I've, I've saved one of my favorite conversations for last because 
we kind of glossed over the, the the total trajectory of everything. You know, you were E, then you were the ABC. At ABC, you were part of the team that launched Shark Tank. So this is why I want to get back to Shark Tank, because yeah. I think it's maybe the greatest format in the history of the business. Yeah. For everything we just talked about, like ease of production, the amount of money that can be made from just all the products that later get sold. Yeah. Like you, you have to negotiate with your panel, of course, uh-huh. but you're really building the show around just these civilians coming in that should be yeah. easy to work with for the most part. It's all shot in one place. You know, yep. it's just like, yep. I think it's the cleanest, simplest, most genius format we have. And just in terms of success, it'll live on forever. There should never be Shark Tank. There should never be a time where Shark Tank is not running new episodes somewhere, right? It's so clean and simple. And also like to your to your point about the longevity of it, like you can mix up the shark's voices. Yeah. Like if you feel like you need to refresh, you can always change up the panel if you want to. Although, um, you know, those, those ones that are there have certainly earned their seats for sure. But yeah, no, it was a big, it was, there were a lot of us in the room for the pitch because it was like uh, Mark Burnett and Sony. So there were a lot of people like, and you know, like when you go into a pitch and there's like 20 people in the room, it's usually a bit of a shit show. It's not a good thing. Like when there are that many people, there's like every agent wants to be part of the pitch. Every junior executive wants to be in the room. So, you know, and it was Mark and I think it was um, not, I think it was Mark and David Eilenberg and Holly and Jamie and maybe even like Zach Van Amberg. Like there were, it was like a full room. That he, okay. And, um, and so, so nobody, so nobody above the reality team, there was no like Paul Lee or whoever was there at the time. No. There was no network head in the room. It was no. just the reality team. It was Steve McPherson was the head of, was the president Steve. of the network at the time. And he came into pitches here and there, but no, he wasn't in that one. The, the format that they came in with was very different from where we ended up. It was, it was sort of a couple of pitches up top. And then I think the back half was like, and then you saw what happened with the businesses or something. And Oh, interesting. It took a, a left turn from the original Dragon's Den format. And did you I, guys do a pilot or did you go straight to series on it? We did a pilot. And I think in the debate in the room, we came to the conclusion that we wanted it to live in the pitches. I do also remember that Mark wanted, you see when they walk in and they walk past the, the tanks, yeah. Mark wanted real sharks in the tanks. And we were <laughs> like, we can't do that. But we did do a pilot and we picked up six episodes based on the pilot. Clay Newbill was, and as far as I know, still is the showrunner. Oh my God. I know. Oh my God. There were seasons where he was doing like, we were doing 26, 30 episodes a year shot in LA. I was like, this is the best job ever. Great job. Great Great, job. Great job. And so many great, amazing producers have come out of that world. Like the guys from B17, I know them from early Shark Tank days. And, but so we do, this is one of my favorite stories. We, we do the pilot. We like the things like that took time. We're like trying to figure out how many pitches to fit in, like how long to let them breathe sort of what order to put them in to build to, you know, and so we played with it and moved stuff around. Oh, we had a host for the pilots. Oh, interesting. Uh, there was like a separate section where like the, this woman would speak to them before they went in. Then you'd see the elevator doors open, they'd come in and then they'd do their pitch. Kind of like the auditions and idol, like Seacrest talks to them in the lobby yeah. and then like yes. sends them into the room with the yep. judges. Yep. Okay. And then she'd be waiting for them there when they came out. It's right. exactly, exactly right. the same thing. And the pilot was Damon John, Barbara Corcoran, Kevin O'Leary, Robert Herjavec, and this guy, Kevin Harrington. Kevin did not make it past the first season. Mm. 
but it's crazy because the other four are still still just there. Na- nailed it. Yeah, nailed just it. nailed it. Who cast uh, it? Was it Burnett's in-house team that cast it? Yes. Yeah. It was just a because they were entrepreneurs, they are VCs or whatever. There, there was like, you know, there's tape on Barbara Corcoran. They're like, right. so they were able to put materials in front of us. The best story is the um one we had um the guy Kevin Harrington that didn't move forward after season one was like as seen on TV guy. Mm-hmm. So he was all about like the products. They sent us tape on Dave Eilenberg and the casting team at, at Burnett sent us tape on um Robert Herjavec. And he was doing the Canadian version of Dragon. Okay. And so in the tape, he's sitting next to Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful. And we're like, yeah, he's great. Like that handsome guy with the piercing blue eyes. Who's that guy next to him? Who's that asshole? And so we ended up taking both of them. And wow. it was what helped it like set the dynamic of the panel because they did it before and they knew how to screw with each other and like how to come in over one another. And uh, like, so they had, they had road tested it. They had that bickering, you know, the chemistry down. And so once they, once the other saw them do that, they were like, Oh, I get it. And the, and so it, they sort of set the template, but so we did that pilot and then we picked it up for six episodes and then had the brilliant idea. I think we hadn't, sh- we hadn't shot anything yet, but we were like, Oh, we'll include it in screen in, in the May pilot screenings, you know? So for anyone that's listening that doesn't know, like you do the networks, I don't know if they still do. They used to do uh, broadcast screenings in May for like a week. You would just sit there, every employee in the company would just sit there and watch basically all the new pilots you had coming up. And then coming out of that, you would pick up the shows you were going to have for the fall and, you know, go forward and half the stuff would make it and half of it wouldn't. Um, and you, you would screen it in these big rooms with people. And then everyone sits around and talks about the show and like basically can kill it or like, you know, or every producer's nightmare, just every, like the, 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 the 30 person group think discussion. Yeah. yeah. Except this is 200 people. And one of them is Bob Iger and one is Ann Sweeney. And you're like, fuck me. And there's a reason we never screen unscripted because it's the pilots that you're screening are all the scripted pilots and it's like where they screen the pilot for lost and i think that season we might have even screamed like modern family pilot like it's these multi-million dollar shows and you're like your dinky little reality show is going up after modern family and it was eviscerated in the room they were like they're so mean to these people oh. oh these people are just they're crushing their dreams and do they have to say no and it was just like everything that we love about the show. <laughs> they just, you know, it, thank God we'd already picked it up is all I would say is because that focus group could have killed it right there. And so we did the first six episodes and it had three different time slots. It got moved around like three or four different times. It was a, a labor of love to have it picked up to the second season. We ended up putting a weirdly Jeff Fox where they came and did two episodes because the Steve McPherson, the president of ABC at the time wanted a celebrity shark. So that's what got it picked up for a second season. Plus Sony and, and Burnett, they really like put on a show and like they worked very, very hard to move it forward to that second season. And thank God they did. That second season was where it really took off. And we, weirdly, it's when they put it on Friday nights. Mm-hmm. And we thought that was going to completely tank the show because Friday nights were a wasteland and no one put any television there anymore. And it really restarted the night for broadcast. Now yeah, there are yeah. big scripted shows on Friday nights, but we thought that was the death of the show. And then the real turning point for the show is when we brought in Mark Cuban, 
or like an episode or two, because he just completely flipped the script on the dynamic of the sharks. Because those, they thought they knew what they were doing. They had their cadence down and everything. And then he came in and he just completely like screwed with them. And it was so fun. We would just sit in the green room and watch the pitches go down. And we were like, oh my God. Where is it? Where is it shot? It was shot on the Sony lot the first couple of years. I left after season five. So, I mean, it's got to be in what, season 11, 12? I mean, 10, something. It's, it's, it's been around, but it's such a great show. It's such a classic show. And like at its core, it is American dream. And then, like we said, that drama that's playing out amongst the sharks is like a great B story. It's so good. I'll leave you with this. Yeah. So from your travels through E, ABC, your stopover on the selling side at Electus, Fox, Turner. You can only pick one. Oh God. One show that you've been a part of today. Yeah. Talking about how you just talked about how like the same director of Shark Tank has been there for like a million episodes, right? If, yeah. if I told you you're only going to work on one show for the rest of your career, that's it. That you've actually worked on, right? That you've been a part of. What yeah. would it be? Oh my God. I feel like you have an answer, but you don't know if you can say or not. No, no. Well, okay. There's reason for this. I'm, I'm torn, certainly because of all the history and the happiness that it brings. You know, Wipeout's got a very special place in my heart. And I love that it's the same producer from the original, mm-hmm. um, you know, to now the creator and producer. But, and I wasn't even there for like the launch of this show. I, I inherited it when Brandon Reed left and went to Netflix. But I think it's because it was like the time in my life and the fact that it was such a massive juggernaut and that everyone on the show was so close and very much like family. And, and to this day are still some of my close friends, but I loved my experience working on dancing with the stars so much. And I almost went, when I was freelance, I almost went to go work there. I think it was season two when they added a result show because I was coming off of all of those live shows. And I, you know, as you do when you're a freelance producer, it's like such a, it's a timing thing. So it's like very much all or nothing. You'll have like you know, not, no shows for a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden you'll have three offers. And so I got the offer for, for dancing at the same time. I got the offer for this other show that I won't even name because no one's heard of it. And I took the other show because I just, I really loved the creative of it. It was more of a docu-soap. It was Real Housewives before Real Housewives. Okay. But my now husband was the executive producer so I like to think, even though the show failed. Oh, that's where you met Tony. Okay. I had met him like in passing once or twice before, but that's how I, like, that's the first time I really got it. Got to know him. I spent any time with him. So even though the show was, it did, did not work out so well or as well as we all would hope. I got Tony, my yeah. husband out of it. And then eventually, you know, a couple of years later, a year or so later, when I went to work at ABC, I actually got, came all the way around and got to work at, um, at dancing and, it, it was just like a great time in television, you know, Lost was on and Desperate Housewives and Grey's was like in its heyday and dancing was on and, um, you know, The Bachelor and Shark Tank was coming. It was just like a really great time and Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Yep. I mentioned that one, obviously, like there was just so much good television and to be part of that pop culture moment that everyone is talking about is like, you know, like my 80 something year old mother-in-law, like still to this day is like, oh, the dancing cast this season. I love it. And I'm like, Judy, I haven't worked on that show in like (laughs) 
you know, 10 years or something like it felt very special. It was a special moment in time for me. Like it was just, you know, it was all new to me too. It was my first time being an executive. So it was just like, it was just so great. And it was live. It was like back where I come from. Like I understood what it felt like. I felt at home in that live booth and it was just, it was great. It was such a well, great. It's, all, it's also a good gig because you only have to work two days out of the week. Yes. Yes. Cause, cause it is a live show when you're the network exec. I mean, you're on calls, but like you're really, you're, you have to sit through the edits. Right. When it's done, it's done. It was, you know what? Worth it. I had this conversation with Missy, I think during the last season of dancing with the stars, cause she still watches and, and she loves it. I don't know why Bruno is not a bigger star here. <laughs> like Bruno has been on that show forever. forever. Yeah. He's incredible. He's maybe one of the greatest to do what he does. Yeah. And I don't for the life of me understand why Bruno is not in commercials, why Bruno is, I don't know if he lives a very private life, but he is a 10 out of 10. And yeah. I don't know why he hasn't been more of a crossover star for, during that show's run. I don't I love, understand. I love that you used the dancing vernacular and gave him a 10 out of 10. Um, <laughs> see, now I'm like, oh no, should I have said mass singer? That was a good one too, but I think, well, they gave, they had like spinoffs in the early days. There was Bruno versus Carrie. There was like dance wars. There were a bunch, there were like- There was, but don't you feel like almost like on a pop culture level, like I almost feel like the sharks from Shark Tank are more wider and broader in terms of- I don't know. I think like that show is, it's very sort of democratic because there's such a massive celebrity cast. Then you have Tom, then you have, you know, Brooke, Aaron, whomever. Yeah. And you have the three judges, like, Plus the pros became celebrities in their own right. So you have Val and yep. such a massive cast to spread out the fame. Yeah. So I know that was a constant struggle to keep everyone on an even keel and sort of, there wasn't a lot of room for people to really blow up beyond the show. Although obviously Derek and Julianne and some of the other dancers have really. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of the Huffs. I'm a big fan. You got to love him. I'm a big, I'm a big fan. I think Derek Huff is fantastic as a panelist. And yeah. Derek's like, he's clearly obviously a great dancer and performer, but like his talent as a choreographer is like beyond beyond. And I don't think they, they, they don't all get like enough credit for like the hats that they're wearing. And no, it's a, it's a masterclass in live, live direction. You're right. And it's never gotten the attention it deserves because the direction needed for each and every dance number to be unique unto itself, as opposed to like, a singing show where you're covering one person with a microphone for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I think half of those, half of those numbers, they'll have like, they'd have the troupe in it. So there'd be six backup dancers and the, and he would, he captured it. Like you were in it. Like the, he just, again, the choreography that that took to get to be immersed in the dance was something that I have not seen on another performance show dance show since I mean world of dance actually did an amazing job but I think a lot of the world of dance people actually came from sure trained up on dancing uh, you know originally but it's hard to pick just one but good answer it's a good answer I've I've kept you long enough I appreciate it I loved it it was awesome was this okay it was great yeah anything we missed I mean I don't think so I mean I could sit and talk to you for another hour but (laughs) Well, you're good. You're good sport, especially doing this late on a Friday. No, no, it's actually perfect timing because otherwise I, you know, would be, there are so many distractions. This is like, now I can just go clean up my email and hopefully be done for the day. But also yeah, you know, I, heard, I heard, I heard a few come through during the course of the, uh, oh, you? so oh. you, you've got some, you've got some piling up. 
all right, well, I can read those just as well with a beer in my hand. Uh, have a great weekend. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Bye. You too.